Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Clem Bezold. In 1997, Clem Bezold founded the Institute for Alternative Futures. Its goal was to encourage anticipatory democracy and foresight. For over 40 years, Clem himself and the Institute have been major developers of foresight techniques and have been applying those techniques and futures research and, and planning methods in both public and private sectors. Dr. Bezold received his PhD in political science from the University of Florida and he has published numerous books and reports on the future of government, the courts and healthcare. In December 2019, after four decades promoting foresight, the Institute closed. Clem, now calling himself semi-retired, will continue to promote anticipatory democracy and foresight, but particularly tracking the transformation of economics and work, I think what he calls equity rising, and technology's contribution to equity and sustainability, which I think he refers to as abundance advances. Welcome to FuturePod, Clem. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for coming and thanks for making yourself available. And, and, and I will say congratulations for, um, you know, an inspirational uh, 40 years work with, uh, you know, with the Institute. It's been a, it's been a tremendous um, asset for us to know that it's there and been doing the work that it's been doing for as long as it did. Great. Well, we were, it was great. It was a great ride and, uh, and we, we were, we're happy with sort of what we've what we're able to accomplish. So let's start with question one, Clem, and that's the one where I encourage the guest to tell their story of how did Clem Bezold become a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So I did that as a graduate student in political science and choosing my dissertation, I focused on Congress and foresight. Mm. Uh, this was in 1973, in the middle of the first energy crisis. I was working at the University of Florida Law School at the Center for Governmental Responsibility. And I had decided that I should do my dissertation in the area of governmental responsibility, sort of, um, thinly or not necessarily well-defined in general, but I defined it as saying avoiding crisis decision-making was more responsible than not. And so I said, you know, what the politics and processes of Congress either doing that or proposing doing it. Yeah. And I started um, developing cases and, and uh, became a visiting scholar at the Brookings Institution which is in Washington, and set off to interview uh, people on uh, the House and Senate side of Congress about three different proposals, one of which Alvin Toffler had a very significant role in developing, and that's a requirement in the rules of the House of Representatives that House committees do oversight, but they also do foresight. Yeah. And that led me, I interviewed Toffler and, and we struck it off and it was clear he was trying to promote 
uh, anticipatory democracy, Future Shock, had come out three years before, and he been, had been having a series of meetings of cabinet secretaries and uh, Betty Friedan type leaders of the, the women's movement and others to talk about anticipatory democracy. And I was a graduate student, but I had campaigned, uh, done political campaigning professionally before I went to graduate school and had done a variety of organizing type events. And so I became the sort of part of that group. And we put on at a, a senator's suggestion, the first legislative seminar on foresight for the U.S. Congress mm. in 1975. And, the, and, we, and I was doing my dissertation at this time and I was becoming a futurist in the process, but I was being mentored by Alvin Toffler and Jim Dater. And we were doing, promoting community futures and other forms that I could come back to what anticipatory democracy means and has been. You know, Toffler then seeing our level of activity and I was in Florida uh, and in Washington, he basically got Antioch University to put up seed money for me to start the Institute. Yep. So that was, and it was located, Antioch University was an early place to have multiple campuses. And it had a law school in Washington. And Antioch University had a long history, rich history of social activism and civil rights. Their interns were among the major supporters of the civil rights movements in the summer in the 1960s. It was a, it was a wonderful place for me to start the institute. The law school had been created to train lawyers to work for the poor. So we, we started the institute and you know, we started doing a variety of things, holding conferences, doing seminars, and, and I continued sort of learning futures. Those are amazing heady times for you to to be immersed in a field when you've got, you know, uh, Betty Frieden and Alvin Toffler and... Amen. And, and it was, and in effect, and Jim Dater, you know, among those, and, and I was the graduate student in the group. So it was, it, it was, it was a fascinating time. Mm. I mean, I have to ask the question because it's just, <laughs> is that looking back at that time, in the Beltway with Washington and how you draw, you know, what do you draw from that when you see what's sort of the current state of, you know, the political process? Um, it's, it's ironic. And in that uh, Toffler asked me in uh, about 76 or so to edit um, a book that he had identified. He'd recruited the authors. He, gotten his publisher to line up to do it, but he knew what a pain it was to, to be the editor of a book where you have to keep the uh, folks producing. So he asked me to do, to, to do that. So I did. And the book was Anticipatory Democracy. Wow. And, you know, that was a, you know, we had a sense of, of things advancing. And ironically, one of the authors was a history professor in Georgia who had met Toffler and they had become friends, and uh, his name was Newt Gingrich. Wow! And he did a he did a wonderful article on Jimmy Carter's goals for Georgia program. Jimmy Carter had done as a governor. He was you know a non political person and was governor and and did this in effect a, a futures program that Newt summarized in the book. You know he and 
he got elected in 1978 when the book came out and I went down to Atlanta and we actually did a press conference on the book coming out. But he and Al Gore started a congressional clearinghouse on the future. Wow. And in 1982, the last time anybody made a national proposal for foresight, it was the Gore-Gingrich proposal. What was interesting in terms of the, the current condition is that we have become much more hostile and partisan. And Newt Gingrich, when he became speaker, championed that. And it was interesting because foresight requires the ability to say both there are alternatives and to consider impacts. Um, that becomes harder to do in a hostile environment. And so, so I knew many factors contributed to sort of the slowness or the decline of, of foresight. And I'd say that foresight in the U.S. government in federal agencies has had probably three waves of, of growth and decline. So we're in our, in our third wave now. But in Congress, there is um, politics drives out thoughtfulness and foresight is a form of thoughtfulness in policymaking. It strikes me as a sliding door moment, if you, you know, the sense of what could have been a future that could have emerged. I can report a similar thing in Australia where, you know, bipartisan approaches to large problems were not uncommon in Australian politics in the past, but uh, hard to see where bipartisanship on the big questions uh, emerging in our political system. And then, of course, if you look across the, if you look to what's been going on in England as they've been tearing themselves to pieces, um, it's hard to find examples of where leaders are prepared to be thoughtful in the face of uncertainty. Yes, and it makes you appreciate sort of the big thinkers of the, the political leaders of the past who, and, and it is both a, a thinking question, but it's also a culture and style question. It's the hostility and the making your political opponent your enemy, devaluing them and not respecting them. And, and that's the, those, those have gotten exacerbated. And, and Newt, you know, basically said when he, came into leadership, he basically said that we're going to have to, as Republicans, school ourselves in how to attack the Democrats. And he, he did that very significantly. But you're right. And, and that's that happens all over. I think it, it comes and goes, that hostility and partisanship in waves. When we talk about equity rising, there are prospects for, there's sort of a base of cultural and uh, demographic changes taking place along with values and attitudes. So in the U.S., you know, we're becoming a minority uh, majority or majority minority uh, nation. And there are solid Republican places like Texas, which are turning blue and becoming Democratic and will become more so in the 2020s. And so, you know, I, I have some hope that our politics will become more civil as well as more so, more foresightful. You know, the, the recent years in the Trump election has shown that we're on backwards. But again, I think that will that will change. Yeah. I mean I look you know, if you 
you know, the pendulum swings in one direction and invariably it swings back the other way at some particular point. I mean, what I'm noticing, just paying attention to what's happening in Australia, and Australia is a very small country, but I'm seeing a rising level of civilian disquiet with leadership and people being prepared to go onto the street and actually become effectively the... You know, I think we're seeing in Australia that there's significant parts of the public, both the young and the old and all kinds of people that are actually saying this is not good enough and they're, and they're asking more of their leaders than the leaders are comfortable with giving given the partisan nature of politics. To some extent, I think, I think we're going to see more examples of people just ignoring the political and simply going to find you know, solutions. I know they can't completely ignore politics, but they're not going to wait for politicians. It's going to be a very, uh, it's going to be a rocky ride as we watch the way democracy has to adapt along with humans adapting to some big changes around us. Yeah, I think that, that there's a lot of sense in that. got a question too, Clem, because this is the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a method or a framework that is central to their practice and to explain the use of that method you know, at a practitioner level as to how someone listening who was interested in doing this work might well use the tool and set the tool up and that kind of thing. So what do you want to talk about, Clem? About aspirational futures and in particular the way that, that the type of scenarios that that leads to. Right. In that, you know, scenarios we find in the tool basket of futures to be among the most effective for stimulating thinking, imagination, creativity, as well as focusing concern and enhancing vision. And scenarios can do that if you do it in the way that we've evolved. And that is to say that while we don't develop predictions, we do develop forecasts and you need to determine the system that you're in and what are the key forces and determine sort of what you want scenarios to focus on. You know, is it the business lines of a company or the company itself or the marketplace and the company is in or the sector or the larger macro environment? Or if you were in health, is it a discipline like neurology or the delivery team, the physicians and advanced providers and nurses, et cetera? Is it their provider systems, the hospitals, the uh, businesses? You know, what's the delivery system, the payment systems? And then what's the larger environment there? And so sorting that out is important for figuring, you know, what do you want scenarios for? But then we argue that you want to develop the, the first scenario that says what's most likely given all of the uncertainty, including expectable disruptions, you know, what changes, um, you know, will the, will the application of AI, what's the likely applications in your field? And will, including whatever, any disruptions that those are likely to bring over 10 or 20 years. And so putting that together, that's an expectable future. But then we argue that you should devote a scenario to looking at major challenges. What could go wrong? Not to encourage them, not to say you like them, but to be prepared and reflective of what the implications yep. of those are for 
what you're trying to do. And so that's the second scenario. But then we argue that the third type is the third zone is aspirational space. It's, it's defining visionary space in saying what would a surprisingly successful future look like, particularly one that moves along the lines of your vision, your vision as an organization or a field. And we argue that that vision, virtually all organizations, their vision goes way beyond either the organization itself or how it effectively it serves its customers or delivers its products or maintains its reputation. But companies' visions and include their larger environment. And when you look at their values, generally another way to describe vision is to say it's values put into practice and made real. Yeah. And in general, most organizations have values that reach towards society. And so part of, we argue that you need to say in defining visionary space, take that vision as broad as your values are and say what needs to be, what needs to occur. And we argue that even better than one visionary scenario is two that looks at potentially different visionary outcomes and what alternative paths would take you there. And part of developing those is to say what would be needed in order to get to that state. So most visions increasingly include equitable and sustainable conditions for whatever population or sector is being looked at. And what are the factors that would enable that? And part of what we argue the scenario of power is, is to understand those, to define them. Can I ask you there, because that's interesting, because I can, as I said, you, you're actually suggesting that they have a couple of visionary scenarios. There's obviously some, some logic or some experience for you that says that the people need a couple of goes to build the actual courage up to imagine uh, visionary futures. Is that what that's about? That's, that's a piece of it. And, and I'll come back to, I can talk about vision, audacious goals, and, and that confronting that preferred future process directly, yep. apart from scenarios. The way we do scenarios is they warm up your vision processes and allow you to explore what's necessary to achieve them and how, to what extent your visions need to be re- revised or expanded. Ah, okay. So there is the, the question of how do you put together uh, the pieces? We have two in, in part, part of the question is how many scenarios you develop. And in four is the most generally that we find that groups can absorb in one sitting. You can do three and if time or resources constrain you to do one visionary. But the other question is that there's enough uncertainty that you should use the power of scenarios to explore the range of visionary outcomes and the pathways there. Yep. So that's the, in our practice, found that this gets people thinking. And, you know, the first scenario, the most expectable is very difficult. And it's, you know, we used to call it business as usual, but it's, it's really not because it's really what it includes expectable disruptions. Yeah. You need to come down and say, what's the most likely application of new technologies or other disruptors in your field? And in the U.S. economy, the biggest, one of the largest debates in that regard is to what extent will automation, artificial intelligence, automation affect employment? 
and the estimates range from 14.5% to 47% of the U.S. workforce will be, uh, jobs will be eliminated yeah. in the U.S. workforce by 2030. So that's the huge question. And we argue that for in developing your most likely scenario, you need to say where within that range uh, would you agree? So the first conversation about the likely scenario as a as a workshop process would likely draw out amongst the participants the awareness there's, gee, there's actually a very, very wide range of possible futures. Yes, yes. And, and it's getting people primed to say what we think is most likely has we've thought about it in relation to the various forces, forecasts and, and alternatives that are out there. And, and it also, we can develop scenarios in a, I'd call them thin scenarios, but most of the scenarios we develop uh, richer, deeper, more involved, and look at, if you think about the macro environment, the operating environment, and the topic or the organization, there's complexity and a variety of elements and details in each of those. What we have focused on, and it, for better or worse, is relatively complex scenarios stories that weave through sort of what's happening in some comparative way across the various elements that you put together. So it, it, it will take often, you know, three to nine months to develop a set of scenarios. Yep. So when you say, th- when you say a deep scenario, it's, it's just, what exactly gives it its depth? Well, the form that it takes lately for us is typically comes out in a scenario report that has narratives of you know, five to 10 pages of story, and then a matrix that compares uh, across, and that might be another 10 pages. Yep. And, and those are the relatively complex, dense statements of the future. Okay. Here we're working in the, what I'd call the likely future or the, you know, the, the probable future. Mm-hmm. And then you move to your second scenario, which I think is what is, if I was giving it a shorthand, I'd call it the disruptive future. Well, it's challenging the disruptions, but it's, um, you know, recessions, severe climate change. Yep. What can go wrong? Some disruptions can be positively transformational. Okay. And that's the sort of order or the sort of pacing that you would do. You would do, you would have a conversation about the likely future, which would then produce these big things that we're uncertain about, and therefore the futures could be could be many and varied according to how they work out. And then having done that in a workshop sense, you then move to this thing and I and I heard you say the phrase, what could go wrong? Is that is that a term you could use to explain that or introduce it? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we consciously say that scenario two explores some of the, the many things that could go wrong and what would happen. And, and, and I should say that, the, you know, in our field, causal layered analysis is a major advance in terms of the nature of our thinking. And we do, we don't call it that, but part of what we attempt to do in setting the scenarios up is say, you know, what are the systems that you're sitting in? What are the assumptions in those, including ones that, that you may seldom articulate? And so it's, we, we don't use the litany and the other terms in CLA, but it, there's a similar scoping of, of your reality. 
and a forcing of saying what are the drivers that go into setting up the, the you know what are the scenarios going to focus on what assumptions you're going to make about about what's important in shaping them and then putting those together what's most likely in that first scenario then in terms of what could go wrong and, and we've just done uh, national scenarios on human services in the US and then we did those for 11 uh, state and local communities and in each one we said you know one of the obvious questions is in terms of what could go wrong is what will be the severe climate changes there's the expectable climate change patterns which are bad everywhere yeah and then what would be worse all still in the in the likely context so that for the state of Virginia uh, for example there happens to be Portsmouth and Newport are low-lying towns with heavy with some industry and uh, military yeah and they are among the most threatened communities in the u.s as sea level rises and the expectable rise according to the the best state forecasters eight tenths of a foot by 2030 which is perilous for them but if you say in a more challenging scenario by 2030 a foot and a half is plausible and so we put a foot and a half in that scenario. So it's keep saying what else will be going on. And in this case, for the human services, it's saying what are the implications of, of those various things for poverty, for human need, for child and elder abuse, for the need for foster care, and then how will those uh, services be delivered or not, uh, especially given decreasing fe uh, federal and state funds. Is part of the reason for considering what could go wrong to really focus people's attention and the energy and uh, impetus to actually work on the visionary futures? Uh, yes, there's a that's part of it. But it's, it's genuinely just to prepare people to say what could happen. But it is also to say, you know, if, if you think things are bad, they could get much worse. But then we move on to say, well, and what would be positive or surprisingly successful and what will it take so that does have that that definite effect of of saying what do we do the other thing that we when we have all the scenarios together uh, at the end of a workshop or the end of presenting them we'll ask people to vote on the likelihood and the preferability of each scenario and that's to exercise people's judgment more than to get the right yep. uh, forecast but in exercising their judgment, they'll they always say the first scenario is most likely we would have failed in in our approach had, if they didn't. But what's interesting is the second challenging one, depending on how close we are to a recession or to some major event in the community or the sector, challenging one will be rated very highly. Yeah. The visionary ones will get, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, but much lower than the other two. But when you ask about preferability, it's clear that that the expectable future is not anywhere near as desirable or preferable as the third and fourth. Yeah. And the point of that is that most strategic planning in developing its SWOT analysis tends to reify the expectable future and help create it. Yeah. I'm not considering that broadly. And so that's a one of the biggest ahas in our scenario workshops where we use the scenarios at the end of any of the session is that having an understanding your vision and understanding what that means in terms of the larger set of forces 
says that you you have to be careful that your strategies are broad enough that you're not needlessly reinforcing suboptimal futures. Yeah, good. Be careful what you pay attention to all the time because you tend to create what you pay attention to. Exactly, exactly. And and for lack of attending to your vision, you don't create your vision. Thanks, Clint. Question three is one that some of the guests, in fact, I'm going to say most of the guests find challenging because it's the one where I ask uh, Clem Bezold, just human being, citizen of the world, how does Clem make sense of the emerging futures around him? Um, So how do you see it? How do you kind of assess and conceive of the future? In other words, what time frame do you kind of use? Are you, you know, so... So how does Clem make sense of the emerging futures around him? Well, of course, I think about expectable, challenging, and visionary. Of course you do. The future is unfolding in the expectable, most likely way is, is this, you know, technology runs rampant. We may slow climate change, but, or may not, but it's going to wreak havoc regardless of what we do for some time to come. Uh, poverty and inequity will continue to grow. I mean, and that's expectable with some tweaks and improvements. And then it could get much worse. And specific events are likely. On the other hand, we can, and there are seeds of hope that are emerging, that like this equity rising, the change in values and, re- and recognition that equity or fairness is important and that that's a multi-decade rising that is going on that will shape how policy and politics are made. And at the same time, while technology and automation will affect jobs and you know we use jobs to distribute wealth and well-being primarily. And we've got, you know, in welfare and social welfare states, a variety of income supports that are needed. And in most of the futures that I see, they will become more and more needed. And so one question becomes, how will personal contribution and meaning, in effect, there's a welfare trap that many people getting welfare fall into. And it's a lack of ability to sort of both have self-worth and to make contributions. Yep. And so that one of the unfolding futures is developing the ability to recognize people's contributions, whether that's raising children or caring for elders or doing other volunteer things apart from paid work while people are having the opportunity for sustainable lives. And that's where, um, and these human service scenarios that we've been doing in the U.S. for the last three years have taken us through 12 different journeys into this looking and on the optimistic and visionary side, there, is, there are the prospects for technology that could lower the cost of living. And Jeremy Rifkin in Zero Marginal Cost Economy points out that in many sectors, either because of expert systems 
um, artificial intelligence and 3D printing or other forms of repetitive manufacturing, including manufacturing that may move into your community or into your home or into your library, that the cost of things could change dramatically. That won't happen by accident, and it is important that it happen in a way that affects low-income families. Yeah. But, but it can, and there are indicators that it is happening. But so, so I see the prospects for a sustainable, more equitable, high-tech society that honors people, that ensures that education is equitable from the early years, uh, and that, that that is a definite possibility all over, but in, including the US, is not most likely. And it won't happen by accident, but I think it does have the prospects for occurring. Where would, I mean, this is, I think William Gibson said, the future is here now, it's just not well distributed. Amen. That's a wonderful statement. Where would you see some of this, this future emerging right now around us? I, you know, if you take um, pieces like equity rising, in the U.S., public health agencies, hundreds of them have created equity offices in other aspects of state government. Local and state governments have also said that equity affects how we distribute parks and recreation or paving our roads. And that means that low-income neighborhoods that have often been ignored and gotten disproportionately low services should be getting disproportionately more and better services. Yep. And that that's, that's happening. Equity, as I mentioned, is getting more conscious attention. The, in our presidential campaigns, one of the candidates, Andrew Yang, is arguing that, that we should have guaranteed basic income. Yep. That's an amazing advance in terms of the conversation. So there are pieces of value change. There are the technologies that are, and, and, and again, the majority view Things that get the headlines are violence against others, the overpricing of products, sort of corporate bad activity, uh, other things. And, and so there's a, there's a news coverage that makes it harder to see some of the things emerging. But I do think that there is hope and I, what, what we, I believe as a person and as futurist is that we all need to have our vision personally and that that should be shared visions with our communities about what we're creating and that process leads to it will lead to better futures good yeah thanks Clint. So, Clem, one of the things that people who come to our field fairly early on that they find quite challenging is what they call themselves and how they explain what they do. So how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? I say I'm a futurist, and, and that means that I help communities and organizations and sometimes individuals think about the future. Right. That's thinking 
both about what might happen and what they prefer. Right. And then we use a variety of tools to enhance that thinking, scenarios being one of them, and enhance their sense of what they want to create, which is visioning and audacious goals. Right. You did mention that you talk about audacious goals because as part of how you explain what you do is, and particularly I would imagine working with communities that have tended to be ignored, is how do you create belief in the groups that this time it's different, that that this time they can articulate and influence and create the futures they want? The Often by using vision to give or expand hope yep. and also using scenarios and this kind of thinking to see paths either beyond or out of where things are or to understand what next challenge might be thrown at them. Obviously, you don't find any lack of uh, community and people's wish to create better futures for themselves. Um, yes and no. We, we haven't. In terms of my practice, I did more in my early career of community visioning. Later on, it became more organizational and agency visioning, uh, sort of in effect, having to charge to do my work. <laughs> we, the institute, we, I personally priced myself out of a lot of community. Uh, work, yeah. But yeah. the but the communities that I work with, particularly in like professional associations, and and some communities, and even this the latest eleven state and local communities that were funded by a foundation for us to go do this, those would often uh, involve having them get a better sense. On the other hand, what we one of the things we observed was two of the eleven state and local communities had very strong shared community visions. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that their scenario one, their expectable future was qualitatively better for the other nine in that vision creates it. Vision done well creates futures. That's what it's about. So that's, you know, that's a piece of empowerment. Uh, that we do. And, and I, I talked about the, my favorite method being scenarios. And in general, the two major pieces of work that we do are, are scenarios and vision work. And the vision being a sequence of having people revision or enhance their vision, develop audacious goals, and then relate that to strategy. Yeah. I guess you're going to say that really doing scenarios without examining vision is possibly not going to really produce any value. Well, and in, in it's the, the way I'd put it is that and we often, organizations often do scenarios before they relook at the vision. But the way we do scenarios, the, we would always look at their vision and values and talk with them to talk through. In, in some, some sectors, some professionals have difficulty with working in that space, acknowledging visionary space related to their vision. Some have trouble broadening their vision beyond an organizational vision that says that they serve their members well and are the best one in their field. Yeah. And we work hard to clarify 
that vision at its best has an ennobling quality because it's really about your broader sense of what should be and leads people to focus on it. But what's interesting, I should say here as a footnote, that we've learned uh, over the years that, you know, we all have uh, personality preferences. Uh, The Myers-Briggs type, for example, identifies that we've got certain strengths and certain capacities and in our, we have gifts that differ among us. Well, some people's psychological preferences may make them likely to have an allergic reaction to futures work. Yeah. <laughs> so that the modal type for business, for management, both public and private sector is STJs. Yep. Um, they can, you know, they're, they're concrete, they're focused, and they can come to conclusions developing alternatives can generate anxiety. Yep. You know, they, they want to focus and come to conclusions. They don't want multiple alternatives to have to consider. And then vision, as it deals with values, also deals with feeling. It's a heart. I, I say that vision is futures for the heart while scenarios are futures for the head. Right. And for thinking as opposed to feeling types of the Myers-Briggs, that too can generate some uneasiness, but it's, we find that talking about it, having people reflect on that in relation to their own type is a useful way to get them to not have that type, their preferences sort of unconsciously um, hinder them from doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing with typologies, of course, is that there's dominant and secondary and tertiary capacities. Well put. Mm-hmm. And and if you have people who are dominant STJ thinkers, well, it's you are to some extent asking them to practice and learn and develop their. I'm not going to call them inferior. I'm just I'm I'm going to say less used. Um, one of the things I found that was a good technique for shifting concrete operational thinkers into that you know more reflective space is is to utilise the notion of the generation after you, the people that come after you, the the notion of legacy, the notion of what you're remembered for, the notion of what you provide for the people who come after you. So this is kind of uh, Elise Boulding's idea. Yeah. Yes. I, again, I found that, you know, very, very concrete um, operational thinkers, when they actually understand that they will be passing on to the next group, can actually become quite thoughtful. I, I We agree in our experience reinforces that we use a, a technique of the legacy letter yes uh and that is imagine that it's 20 years in the future you're writing a letter to a grandchild and in, in it you're going to say what you are most proud of you and your organization having done or contributed to during that time and and that that as you describe and i i forget whether some of our colleagues who some of our colleagues actually had studied with Lise Balding and kenneth Balding. yes I may need to give them more credit as well for how <laughs> we got to it or started using it. But it's a very, it, 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 there are, as you say, in, 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 your, in our small shop, two of our people had gotten certified as MBTI trainers. You, it sounds like you may have that level of knowledge as well. Yeah. I have always kept it simple so that uh, my inferior interior didn't get too much in the way. <laughs> 
and, and I sort of took it from the top. But Jonathan Peck, for example, would, would be able to uh, relate to the, the depth that you're taking yeah. it. But it is definitely the case that, that there are those techniques to get people to reflect on more fulsome contribution yeah. that vision could lead to by, by those techniques. Yeah. Thanks, Clay. So question five um, is the open question. Is there something else that you know, you'd like to talk to the listeners about in terms of both, you know, where you're going, what's, you know, your own, you know, the things that excite you going forward? Um, you know, we've, we've obviously covered a bit of the ground on um, equity rising and, uh, and the anticipatory democracy, but what's, what's the last topic that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, the, the, the one that you had raised, we, we did a little bit about it, but the abundance advances. Yeah. And the question is, that's energy, food, and things. And so energy, you know, we increasingly can have low-cost energy, solar, and storage, you know, breakthroughs in hydrogen, in small-scale nuclear, or even in fusion could dramatically change um, the landscape. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how can we bring that about in ways that are, you know, accessible and at lower cost? Um, so ironically, what's um, in one of the questions we kept asking in our human services thing is how can renters get the benefit of low cost energy? Yeah. Homeowners can install it on their thing. Well, it turns out that that, that can be done. It takes some creativity, but, the public housing authority in Denver created a solar garden, uh, you know, a, a solar production facility. Yeah. And, and then that energy produced gets credited to the, uh, the renters of public housing. Yeah. And it's that kind of uh, thinking yeah. that, that we'll need to do more and more of uh, food in food production. It's fascinating in the sense of um, urban agriculture, community gardening, and high-tech high agriculture are all keep moving forward rapidly in a way that households could produce aspects of their food, LED light growing boxes, misting the roots, um, aeroponics. Yep. Could, you, know, you could have a refrigerator-sized box in your house that is producing some percentage of your veggies yep. on an ongoing basis. And if you've got solar powered stuff, you know, the, the cost could be, could drop near zero. Ironically, in the, in, in the U.S., increasingly marijuana is being legalized. <laughs> yes. And so as we worked with uh, uh, communities where that has already occurred, one of the questions in the forecast was in the LED grow box, how much of it would be devoted to marijuana? Likely being, you know, some percentage of yep. it would be. But there are food prospects, and that's and then also there is the meat alternative, both meat in a petri dish and and veggie based yep. meat alternatives, where even in the U.S. Um, the Impossible Burger is a veggie based burger that is making a huge inroads into both upscale burger restaurants and um, Burger King. What I'm hearing, Clem, is that with this, with these abundance advances, 
there's no guarantee they necessarily are going to improve equity, but if we actually have both in mind, you can actually use one advance to drive another outcome. Yes, a amen. And and in in the the third category, the distributed production, 3D printing, you know, they've already in the U.S. the first 3D printed home right. has been produced for ten thousand dollars in a day or two, meeting local government codes. They had to drop on the roof because it's not the printing's not yet there. But but there are fascinating questions, and also using 3D printing, Singapore has used has 3D printed some of the components of their high-rise buildings, and Singapore has yep. uh, emphasized home ownership for all income levels, and there are prospects for construction that could lower the cost. Again, this is in the context of saying it won't happen by accident that that benefits low-income people, but but that can be the, the, the possibility. So Clem, on behalf of the FuturePod community, um, thanks for taking some time out to, uh, to share your story and um, explain your use of scenarios and, I'm, and certainly did my heart tremendous pleasure to hear you talking about vision and aspiration as a central part of how people create the future. So thank you very much for taking time out to, uh, to join us. My pleasure. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.